Welcome to The Term, a podcast about the Supreme Court by Law360. I cover the Supreme Court for Law360. My name is Jimmy Hoover, and Natalie Rodriguez is out today. But I'm joined by a guest co-host and Law360 Boston courts reporter, Chris Villani. So Chris has been all over the blockbuster affirmative action cases that were argued this morning at the Supreme Court. Actually, I should say into the afternoon because it, it was a marathon session that lasted five hours. But uh, Chris, you wrote the story up and we're going to uh, get into it. But first, thanks for agreeing to come on the show today. I appreciate it. No, no problem. My pleasure. These arguments always last five hours because if they do, Jimmy, you definitely deserve a raise. <laughs> I guess I should just say that they do. But no, they. this <laughs> one was crazy. I knew we were, I should just mention that I was in the, the courtroom for I would say three quarters of the of the two of the two hearings, and when I looked up at the clock after the end of the UNC case, which was argued before the Harvard one, and I saw that it was like already what one thirty or something. One, yeah. yeah, I was like, oh man, we are we are in it. We are in it for the long haul. Um, but yeah, so just as a refresher for our listeners, Chris, why don't you just kind of tee up these cases and just remind us how we got to the point where the Supreme Court is weighing the legality of affirmative action in uh, the college admissions process. Sure. So both suits were filed in 2014 by Students for Fair Admissions. It's an anti-affirmative action group that's headed up by a guy named Ed Blum, who's been no stranger to the Supreme Court. He brought both the Fisher affirmative action cases there in 2013 and 2016. Uh, but these two cases, they're they're similar, but th- there are some differences. UNC is a public university, so uh, the allegation there was that the school unfairly discriminates and illegally discriminates uh, against white applicants in violation of the 14th Amendment uh, and also Title VI. And with Harvard, which is a private university, the allegation focused more on Asian American applicants and the uh, claims were that they are unfairly penalized through a subjective personal rating that's part of Harvard's evaluation and that that penalty is due to their race. So that's a very oversimplified version of the claims. Uh, The schools both defended their admissions policies. They both won bench trials at the district court level. As you mentioned, I covered the Harvard one, which lasted pretty much the entire month of October uh, four years ago now, believe it or not, 2018. Only remember the year because the Red Sox won the World Series that same (laughs) month. And then the First Circuit upheld that ruling in 2020. The Fourth Circuit actually never got a bite at the UNC case because SFFA predictably wanted this case going up to the Supreme Court. They said, let's just bypass. We got an appellate ruling already. Uh, Lump this in with Harvard and go straight to the Supreme Court. So that's how we got here with both of these cases. Right. And and we've known that these have been coming up for quite a while. And I think the safe money for many months before today's oral argument was that the conservative majority on the court would predictably um, rule in favor of this anti-affirmative action group and basically hold that their claims are legitimate and that these race-conscious admissions policies are illegal. Uh, Five hours later after oral arguments, does that (laughs) prognosis still stand or what? Yeah, I, I, I honestly, at one point, I thought to myself, uh, so, and this is no knock on the advocacy we heard on from anybody today, but I really thought that the SFFA lawyers could have gotten up there, said overturn Gruder, maybe like let out a burp or something, I don't know, sat down, and I don't think it would have changed anything. I, I, I really do. And, and there were interesting questions. Certainly, there were interesting lines of discussion that we can go into, but at the end of the day, 
I would struggle to find any world in which this is not a 6-3, uh, or in the case of Harvard, Justice Jackson's recused because uh, of her involvement at Harvard, but um, a six-vote majority, will say, from the conservative wing to overrule Grutter and end the use of race in higher admissions with probably a number of, of concurrences and, and different avenues that I think were teased out through the questioning. Now, obviously, you're referring to the 2003 landmark decision in Grutter. I've been calling it Grutter this whole time, but I'll, I'll, I'll adopt your <laughs> pronunciation. Chris. They, they actually couldn't agree on it either. It yeah. seemed like half the time it was Grutter today, half the time it was Grutter. We're going to have to find her and ask. We'll just, yeah, yeah, we'll have to, we'll have to do some, uh, some reporting on this one. But for purposes of this episode, it's Gruder. So in Gruder versus Bollinger, or Bollinger, that's another <laughs> to trip me up. Um, the Supreme Court uh, majority in a decision written by Justice Sandra Day O'Connor upheld the narrow use of race as a factor in the college admissions process in order to serve uh, the the compelling interest of educational benefits that um, derive, that are derived from a diverse student body. Um, now, notably, and this kind of came up over and over again today in oral arguments, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor in writing that decision says, you know, it's been 25 years since we first weighed in on affirmative action. Um, we hope that in 25 years more, these kinds of policies will be no longer necessary. How did that kind of line i guess you could call it a sunset and expiration date or just a throwaway line how did that uh rear its head in, in in your opinion from 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 today's hearing chris yeah it was really interesting it's a couple of paragraphs that i would love to drill down on exactly what she meant by that and this is one of those situations where someone could ask but it's <laughs> Is it, a, is it a throwaway? Is it just sort of aspirational? Is the 25 just in reference to, as you pointed out, the fact that they'd addressed it 25 years prior uh, in, in the Bakke decision in 1978? No matter what, though, there were certainly some justices. I, Justice Barrett's the one that jumps to mind who repeatedly just homed in on this. And the question, and it wasn't just Justice Barrett. I, I think um, Justice Kavanaugh and the Chief Justice also were were pretty... Uh, insisted on this point in asking Harvard and asking UNC and asking the Solicitor General, uh, who is arguing on on behalf of the universities, that it's, or, or at least in, in alignment with the universities, if not by 2028, if not 25 years from Grutter, when? When do you know? What do you have to hit in terms of specific numbers or uh, ratios or, or whatever, feelings in camp, whatever it is, to know that you've done it? You've hit diversity. You don't need to use a, a check of a box for race to achieve this anymore. And Seth Waxman from Wilmer Hale, who was arguing for Harvard, said that there's not a specific time in terms of a target. He said they're getting closer, but they're not there yet. Um, Elizabeth Prelliger, the, the uh, uh, Solicitor General, said that it's something that's under constant evaluation for universities and it's uh, something that is also not only a moving target in terms of the future, but also looking in the past. I mean, it wasn't too many years ago that some universities were discriminating based on race as a matter of, of their practice, uh, depending on where they are in the country. So everybody sort of started from different places with this also. But that idea of if we don't end this now, when does it end? It was certainly on the minds of some of the justices. And I would think, especially if the chief ends up being the one writing this opinion, which might 
just my hunch is that that maybe he will. And I'd be curious to get your thoughts on that, Jimmy. Um, I, I think that might be something that he focuses on to make it seem like, okay, yes, this is upending precedent, but this is different than, well, let's say, for example, Dobbs. This is precedent that had sort of an expiration date already. So it's not maybe as extreme a decision as some of the other ones or as it might be panned by the major or the minority because this is precedent that we uh, that everybody agrees should go away at some point and that we aspire to have go away at some point and that the court even said will go away and had an expiration date. So mm-hmm. we're just sort of hitting that expiration date. I, I would be just a few years ahead of, of schedule, but yeah, no, that's that's definitely uh, that was a heavy theme at oral arguments, and I you mentioned the fact that uh, Justice Kavanaugh in particular was like really grilling. Um, I believe it was the attorney for the University of North Carolina about you know just when they will come to a place where they feel confident enough to stop, or was that prelogger? I can't remember exactly who he was. It asking. came up a lot. <laughs> yeah. And it's it's interesting because it feels like the Supreme Court, through its its affirmative action decisions, have kind of like boxed you know advocates in and what they're allowed to say and what they're not. Because obviously the the defenders of these policies can't say, oh, once it hits fifteen percent, or once it hits ten percent, or this percent or that percent. It's because in Baki, the decision from nineteen seventy eight, the Supreme Court struck down the use of these racial quotas in these schools, so those aren't even constitutional anymore. Um, additionally, in the the Grutter ruling, and I know we're probably getting a little bit of whiplash going back and forth between the the two, but the Supreme Court rejected a lot of the arguments in defense of affirmative action and only upheld affirmative action in the sense that it serves this interest of educational benefits. So nothing about remedying past racial inequalities or other uh, perceived benefits that might flow from affirmative action, but in this narrow instance of you can't use quotas and it has to be narrowly tailored to serve these educational benefits. And so you have these advocates getting up at the Supreme Court who are already facing this sunsetting provision, kind of having to kind of like move and maneuver around a lot of the precedents in this area that are already on the books. So I guess let's just back up a little bit and maybe turn to some of the big themes. Um, you mentioned that this is probably the safe money is on the conservative majority overturning Grutter and getting rid of affirmative action in higher education. And I, I, I share that assessment. And I was struck by kind of similar to the Dobbs case. This just felt like it's, it's an issue that the justices have probably had opinions on for their entirety of their adult lives. They they're coming to this case with a lot of personal perspectives that are informed by their own experiences. Um, what do you? What stood out to you um, about the justices kind of like sh- kind of maybe bringing some of their own biases and experiences and and uh, personal perspectives to this case? Yeah, there definitely a few things stood out, and I would say none of them are surprising. And it really could be summed up in a few justices on sort of both sides. So starting with what I believe will, we both believe will be the majority, it's pretty clear where Justices Thomas and Alito are. And Justice Thomas said, at a couple of points said, I don't even understand what you mean by diversity. And he really wanted to drill down. It, it, it It's just so interesting. I, I really wonder what his college experience was like because he didn't seem interested in any sort of benefit of, diver, of diversity other than academic. It, it seemed like, how does it help you 
with books and tests and essays and exams and absolutely nothing else. And I think the points that Harvard and UNC have tried to make throughout is that college is a lot more than that and education is a lot more than just what you do in exams. But you want to know what the educational benefits. And I thought that the the UNC uh, attorney, the North Carolina Solicitor General, kind of struggled to answer that question. Um, in fairness, those who got the question later had the benefit of maybe knowing it was coming by the time they got up there. It's tough when you go first. But it's probably he really at that point nobody had really challenged the the notion that um, you know there's no value in in having diversity on a on a college campus that seemed to at least in principle be agreed upon by all the parties. But you're right, Thomas is like I I went to you know he grew up in in the Jim Crow South and he went to mm-hmm. at one point an all white boarding school and he was like basically it served me well. So what is the value of diversity on campus? I don't really understand it. And then he was referring to um, some of the studies that have been done about, you know, making students feel like less isolated or anxious or have some community. And he's like, those are all feel good things. I want to know how it helps you like learn organic chemistry basically. But yeah, that was a, that was an interesting set of exchanges. Yeah. Some might say you can learn organic chemistry better if you feel good uh, and don't feel isolated, but who knows? I never tried to learn organic chemistry, thankfully. Um, and, and just as Alito, he took a different tack, but it was similar. He, he said, you're talking about the checking of a box. You don't need to check this box. He looks at it very much as a zero-sum game. If someone gets a tip, someone gets a plus, it is to the detriment of someone else. And, th- and that's essentially the argument that SFFA is making. And it holds true on the other side for Justice Sotomayor and Justice Jackson sort of speaking to their lived experience. And I think the perspective, perspective that they came from, they look at the practical effects of what a, a ruling, overruling Grutter would really mean. And that's a likely a precipitous drop in uh, Hispanic and African-American enrollment at places like Harvard and other top schools and how that could be detrimental. So those arguments, those polar, polar uh, polarized arguments really stood out. And, and it, it, it seemed like you just had some, some justices that, were, like you said, were firmly entrenched. They sort of knew when they sat down what angles they were coming at here. And, and that's why I go back to nothing against the quality of the advocacy, but those were four minds that were not being changed by anything that was said over the course of five hours today. Yeah. I mean, I, maybe there were moments where I thought, okay, Justice Barrett seems a little bit sympathetic about the argument um, that an originalist understanding of the 14th Amendment um, can tolerate these kind of race-conscious policies. I felt the same way about Brett Kavanaugh at times, but over and over again, you felt their discomfort with the idea of these of these colleges actually using uh, certain racial categorizations as a plus factor in the admissions process. And I, I don't know, I, I, do you see any universe in which this isn't just a broad ruling in favor of SFA, SFFA um, and overturning Grutter? Is there any kind of narrow escape hatch or compromise ruling? I mean, Justice Kagan a couple couple of days ago, I guess, was talking about her hope about the Supreme Court ratcheting down its decision making, but I, I wasn't really able to see it. Were you able to see one? I don't think so, because unlike and I do hate to compare everything to Dobbs because I know there are issues, there are hot button issues, and then there's abortion. And for a lot of people, that's different than everything else. And I respect that. and I understand that. But just to look at another recent high profile hot button issue in that one, you had potentially the chief justice as a sort of moderating 
uh, influence. I, I just don't think you have that here because he's another one, maybe not to the same level of Justice Thomas, but he's spoken about his disdain for the use of of race and emissions and judging people by uh, uh, race in the past. This is this is an issue that he feels strongly about. That's why I think he probably ends up writing the opinion. So if you were coming at it from the perspective of Harvard and SFFA, you were looking at, like you just said, Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh. And I, I think they both are very skeptical of the fact that it doesn't seem like Harvard and UNC have a good answer, at least to them, a satisfactory answer for when they won't need to consider race. And I think absent that, they probably fall back on the 2003 Sandra Day O'Connor sunset provision. And they could probably make an argument that, yeah, it's it's 20 years hence, but you've got, if you're looking at it in terms of the, the admissions classes that are being uh, admitted now and over the next year, those are the classes of 2027 and 2028. Now you're looking at 25 years. There you are. It, it, it's sort of that perfect symmetry uh, to to say we're we're done with this, just as this court said we would be in 2003. In contrast to Dobbs, I felt like there was even less discussion of the ordinary principles of stare decisis and going through the factors about when and where to overturn binding precedent of the Supreme Court. It felt like it was almost a little bit of a fait accompli, that this was not a precedent that is entitled to a lot of deference under the ordinary principles of adherence to precedent, and that basically the justices were once again debating the merits of this case. I mean, maybe it's just that like, we've come so far down the road of overturning different uh, precedents of the Supreme Court that it's maybe the justices don't feel like it's worth debating at oral arguments anymore. But I felt like even more so than Dobbs, this was just one where an ordinary conversation around stare decisis just was not really there. Yeah, I agree. Obviously, the ones who were, were harping on precedent more so were the universities because they want the precedent upheld. That's that's good for sure. them. And, and you heard towards the end, um, both uh, uh, Harvard and the Solicitor General making the argument that, well, if you don't think this was scrutinized enough at the lower court, send it back. Don't flip the precedent. Don't up it. That felt like a, a reach. That felt like sort of a let's just give them maybe something else that, that they can glom onto here that's not an, an upright affirmation of the First Circuit, but at least uh, gives you a chance to to sort of fight another day. Uh, yes, I agree. I, I, I just don't think there was a lot of that discussion because, I, I again, I don't know that the court, at least the conservative justices, view this precedent in the same way. I think they view it as a precedent that was always set to expire. And looking at it through that lens, um, it's not the same as as something that people viewed as a constitutional right that is, that's your constitutional right and it's never going to go away. Because that's where everybody agrees, right? Everybody agrees that you want a world where you don't need race-conscious admissions because it's enough of an equal playing field and there, there are race-neutral alternatives that provide diversity that kind of make everybody happy. Everybody sort of wants that. The disagreement is whether you can get to that point right now without using race. SFFA says yes, the universities say no. And it seems like the court is of the mind that, well, this is going to end sooner or later. We said it's going to end pretty soon anyway. So I, I just don't think they're looking at decades and decades of precedent in the same way that they would be in a, in a, in a, in a typical case that has that sort of a backing. 
Also, the fact that they, the other big difference is Casey was, help me out here, 92, 93? 92, I believe. 92, yeah. okay. So since then, you've had one, two, three, four affirmative action cases go to the Supreme Court before these two? I, I mean, they've, they've already tackled this like four or five different times. I, I don't think they even get this case without an eye towards overturning it and without an eye towards this is precedent that is not forever, that was always going to go away, that's not going to be ingrained. I mean, they, they, they've tackled the, the issue too many times, I think, to keep nibbling around the edges. Right. And, you know, to your earlier comment about you thinking that this might be a decision written by the chief justice, I, that's probably a pretty fair shout there. I'd say this is not an issue where he's equivocated much over the years. I mean, he famously wrote in the, I think it was the 2007 case, Parents Involved, that the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. It poses none of the ambiguity to Chief Justice Roberts that maybe something like abortion just, I mean, even if he obviously was sympathetic to the abortion challengers in the Dobbs case, he was conflicted enough, at least on the precedent of Roe versus Wade, that he wasn't willing to just jettison it wholesale. I think, in contrast, affirmative action is something that he's been clear about for the entirety of his like professional legal career since his days as a young attorney in the Reagan Department of Justice. And I just don't see any room for nuance in his uh, approach to this issue as evidenced by the fact that when he was questioning Harvard, he was basically saying exactly how he was going to vote. This is discrimination. And, and he was asking about the extent to which they were actually using these racial considerations in the admissions process and uh, Seth Waxman was like oh it's you know it, it rarely comes into play and he's like and and Roberts is like oh so a little bit of discrimination is okay you know he said something to that right. effect so and he's obviously if he's in the majority he's going to be the one assigning the opinion so he might he might want to grab this one for himself the only potential way I could see him maybe uh, conflicted on that is if he's like doesn't want to be associated with another bombshell ruling and maybe kind of preserve his kind of institutional norm reputation that he's earned but i i really don't think so i think he might yeah i think i i think i agree i think he might want this one who, for himself who, who is he preserving that for if that's the case i know you're just sort of to, of, of speculating but is he preserving it for a small group of legal scholars? Is he preserving it for a small percentage of the people that, that read Law 360? I think the general public, one way or the other, has sort of made up its mind about the Roberts Court, whether they think it's legitimate or not. I just, I, I, I'm curious how much that does in, in, it just seep into his thoughts when, when, when he's going in, uh, when he's thinking about these sorts of issues. No, it's a good, it's a fair question. I think he does see himself as like a steward of the court's reputation. And so a lot of his votes, he kind of ca casts and characterizes them in the, in the context of the Supreme Court's legitimacy. And so I remember being in oral arguments in a, in a, I think it was a gerrymandering case. And he was like, well, you know, what, however you feel about this issue, do we really want the public to see the Supreme Court making these decisions in favor of one party over another? Like, that's just going to completely sully our reputation. And I think you probably see that in the Dobbs case, in his decision to um, dissent as the, his conservative colleagues were voting to overturn Roe versus Wade. Now, maybe, maybe it would be a little bit... Um, 
cynical to think that uh, you know he's going to like hide behind an Alito opinion or a Thomas opinion or a Kavanaugh opinion and think that his reputation wouldn't be blemished at all by a decision overturning affirmative action. Um, but you never know. I mean, maybe he just doesn't want to be the one to make that uh, kind of swift change in the law. But um, I think probably the safe money is on if he's with the majority, which it looks like he is, him maybe keeping it for himself. Yeah, I think so. And I think you could also put, I mean, you have obviously a smaller number, smaller universe here in terms of of who writes the dissent. But I I thought Justice Sotomayor uh, effectively gave us a preview of the dissent when um, we fell into the portion of the program where uh, justices, like-minded justices, are just going to ask questions to draw out affirmative responses from the side that they agree with. And she was talking to the Solicitor General and effectively said, um, I think I have the quote here, you know, the diversity admissions programs across the nation based on their precedential cases are going to have to be reformulated, affecting countless programs. We're reducing underrepresented minorities. We're depriving others who are there of the benefits of diversity. And we're doing it all because race is one factor among many, and it's never solely determinative. It seems like a lot to ask. That feels like the first paragraph of her dissent. So I, I could definitely see her being uh, the one to take the lead in that. Now, it'll be two different opinions. Maybe Justice Jackson would write uh, in the in the UNC case, and then she's not involved in the in the Harvard one. But it seemed like at that point she was almost just writing her dissent as opposed yeah. to asking questions because she was getting nothing but affirmative responses. T- testing it out, seeing seeing what yeah. the... <laughs> um, no, absolutely. And I feel like we also got a little bit of a, a snapshot of maybe things to come if if Grutter is overturned and these affirmative action policies are overturned in the, in the sense that um, schools will possibly be looking to use other race-neutral... Uh, factors in order to increase the racial diversity at their schools. And uh, there was a series of questions about whether that would be legal, because obviously if you decide that any use of race um, is illegal in the college admissions process, if someone just does a proxy for race with the sole intention of achieving the exact same goals, then under that same logic, there would be uh, strict scrutiny applied. And so um, a number of the questions were asked about like, well, going forward, how are we going to kind of uh, decide and adjudicate which of these race neutral factors are going to be um, allowed um, going forward. So yeah, that uh, looks like this one um, is probably going to be a safe win for the SFFA uh, plaintiff doesn't roll petitioners. Off the tongue. No, it does not. <laughs> um, doesn't but, roll off the tongue. But, yeah. uh, but I, I will say, just to pick up on that last point quickly, Justice Kavanaugh did bring that up. He asked early on about something along the lines of if you prevail to SFFA, and he said something like, which seems very possible or seems... Po- <laughs> Maybe tipping his hand a little bit more um, than, than he intended. But if someone were to uh, use someone who's the child of immigrants, you know, would that be permissible? A descendant of slaves, which in that point, the SFFA attorney, Patrick Strawbert, said that's obviously very tied to race, at least in this country. Um, so that probably wouldn't be permissible. And then the other, the only other interesting point, it doesn't really change the outcome, but it, it was something that universities are going to have to grapple with if this decision goes the way we think it will, was Justice Gorsuch and his obsession with squash and the squash teams. <laughs> because as we learned in the Harvard case, they call them ALDCs, the athletes, the legacies, the uh, dean's list 
children for whatever reason end up on the dean's interest list and it was like colliding of, worlds for you chris with the varsity blues uh litigation well, <laughs> exactly the second or third day of the harvard trial um they talked about the statistics and like 82 percent or something of athletes get in and this is at harvard we're not talking about alabama we're not talking about these these athletic programs that are even unc chapel hill which is a huge d1 program revenue program that's not Harvard. And it doesn't matter what sport you play, even if you're a water polo athlete. So yes, hence varsity blues. If you're an athlete, you get in. So why not pretend to be one? But eliminating legacy uh, applicants, maybe changing the preferences given to certain sports that are white dominated, like as Justice Gorsuch kept mentioning over and over again, squash. Um, those types of things could have the potential to tip the balance away from or, or at least towards the underrepresented minorities or away from those who are maybe overrepresented uh, or the, the, the kid whose father can donate an art museum that Justice Gorsuch has no interest in squash and no interest in art museums. We definitely found that out today. So that's something that's going to be potential fallout from this case and something that some of those top schools may have to, to really grapple with. Justice Gorsuch noted uh, conservative justice and enemy of all squash players and uh, art curators or whatever. Yeah, He's no, not even to be squash on his Thanksgiving table. You better, that is a cranberry <laughs> sauce man right there. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Um, yeah, it was a fascinating case. So just maybe before we jump off here, I, I, the, the, in response to, I think it was, you're right, Kavanaugh asking about descendants of slavery and whether they would be um, whether that would be like an illegal proxy for race. Kagan at one point is asking about the numbers of, of women that are admitted on paper um, or the number of women that have kind of stronger academic credentials and who absent any kind of um, consider extra consideration by the schools will eventually maybe come to outnumber, greatly outnumber their male counterparts. And she's like, well, you know, would is that is that going to be something that's illegal or can the schools do anything about that and to which point uh Pratt, patrick strawbridge basically said you know that's going to get some less scrutiny and so she had this really interesting quote where she said so white men can basically get the benefits of affirmative action but the people who've had their teeth kicked in by society over the years can't so it's an totally a case where just kind of the you know, their deep political leanings, probably stretching back decades, really are coming to the fore. And I really don't see any chance of the uh, numbers shaking out this way in the school's favor. No, probably not. In this case, was probably lost for Harvard uh, at the CERT grant, right? That was sort of the opportunity to maybe convince the court that the First Circuit ruling was not out of step, was in line with past precedent. And if you couldn't do it at that point, it really didn't seem like there was a lot. You know, you could have the best lawyers in the country, and, and some of them might have been in that courtroom today. And, and I just don't think it was going to change many minds. All right, Chris. Well, thanks so much for joining us. Um, great reporting on this case. And uh, we'll probably try and have you back on for the decision when it comes out. Thanks, Jimmy. Happy to. Anytime. Well, that's going to do it for today. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please leave a review. We'd like to thank our producers, Stephen Trader and Kelly Marcano, and our executive producer, Amber McKinney. Music for the show comes from Slender Beats. And for more information about all the high court action, go to law360.com slash the term. You can also find us anywhere you listen to podcasts. Just search law360 in the term. <laughs>